back. Puri, where are you? Puri is our international worker in uh, Sri Lanka, and she's back with us for a few months. <coughs> and we want to remember to pray for Puri, and we also want to pray for Gail Stringer. Some of you who were in the morning services, Last week, no, Paul Stringer was one of the gentlemen who was baptized and his uh, mother is uh, needing to go into surgery this Tuesday for cancer. So we want to remember people like Puri who have come back for rest and refreshment in in the body that has sent them and for individuals within the body that are hurting. And those just represent many, many needs within our body, a wide variety of, of needs this morning. And I trust that even as you sang the words of that song, Lord, let your love, let your grace, let your light fall on me. That's my desire. We, we are totally inadequate and often flawed instruments through which God's grace flows. But that's the beauty. That's the beauty of the Christian life is that he has called us, mistakes and all, to be able to get involved in the fray of communicating the grace of God. Reaching out and getting into our lives and then becoming vehicles to touch other people in Vaughan and in here. Through our worship team, through the preaching, through the uh, people who serve in so many different ways. Dozens of people working late last night to transform this um, sanctuary after two nights of incredible uh, Christmas uh, celebrations where many, many unchurched people got a, a flavorful exposure to the gospel of Christ and to the celebrating joy of the body of Christ. But it took lots of people working behind the scenes to do all of that work. And so in all these many ways, flawed human beings are being used by God to bless one another. And so join me as we pray and look to the only one who's unflawed. Okay, let's pray to Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing Puri back into our midst. Thank you for her faithful love for the, for the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized ones in that community. And for such a passion that she has, she even comes home sometimes with reluctance. And Lord, I pray that as she is here, she may find fresh experiences of the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. Mediated through her through these worship services and through hospitality in the homes as people listen to her and talk to her and build into her. And may she go back in due time refreshed and retuned with a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we lift up Grail Stringer before you and pray, Father, that you will grant to doctors wisdom. Thank you that we live in a country where we have relatively easy access to good, good medical care. And we thank you for doctors and thank you for nurses and those who walk around the clock and work long shifts, Father, who are devoting themselves to the physical well-being of others. And we pray that uh, those who operate upon her will have wisdom and the hand of God upon them. And bless those healthcare professionals in our midst even now here, Father, who, who get involved with pain close up while many of us stay much further away from it. And for those who suffer the debilitating emotional pain, Father, from fractured relationships and disappointed dreams and curves that life has thrown them, Father, I pray that this day they may know that the one person who never changes, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, that he will never disappoint them no matter who else does. And may our sufficiency, Father, may your sufficiency meet us in our tremendous time of need, we pray. And now as we come to that particular part of the worship service where we hear your word, Father, again, we pray that you will open our ears and open our eyes. Grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last Sunday morning after the first service on the way out, someone said to me, Thank you for the sermon, Pastor, but what about the cartoon? Well, I kind of got taken aback initially because I didn't know what he was talking about. And then I suddenly remembered that he was referring to these overheads that we've been using. And I didn't use one last week. 
Well, the reason I didn't use one last week was that First Peter, as you know, had to do with the uh, suffering and the persecuted church. And after 21 days of praying for the persecuted church, my head space was not, and my heart space wasn't readily able to move into something humorous at the beginning. Because, of course, it retains its power to stick in our minds by its humor. So let me begin by, with a quick uh, review of what we learned last week. Uh, what do you see here? You see one P, a single P, and it's crying. With a tear. P-tear? Peter. Remember that, okay? <laughs> and it's one Peter. Now, why is he crying? Because he's in pain. A doctor is stitching him up. And the doctor that's stitching him up is a purpose. So, the theme of First Peter is pain with a purpose. Got it? <laughs> one Peter, pain with a purpose. Well, naturally, we need to go to two Peter <laughs> today. <laughs> Two peas crying, but they are crying for a different reason today. They are not crying because of pain. There is poison in the pew. <laughs> they are crying because of poison in the pew. If the danger in First Peter was the external threat of persecution, the danger in Second Peter is the internal threat of false teaching. If the danger in First Peter was to capitulate and quit because of the pain of persecution, the danger in Second Peter is to be seduced by false teaching. If the proper response in First Peter is submission to a sovereign God and Jesus Christ who suffered himself, the proper response in Second Peter is to study so we can resist the invasion of false teaching. And so here are the theme verses for Second Peter and all this is in your study guys. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The main message of First Peter, Second Peter is wrapped up in these verses. We are to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We are to be on guard against false teachers. And we are to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the three chapters are all about. Chapter 1, he talks about true knowledge. Three times in this chapter, the word knowledge comes. We are to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course has been revealed in the Holy Scriptures, both old and new, given to us by God himself. That will be the thrust of chapter 1, and the exhortation is to grow in that knowledge. Chapter 2 is a warning against false teaching, and the implied exhortation is to guard against it by learning to recognize these false teachers. And then chapter 3 is the supreme motivation, the sure and certain promise of the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, and the exhortation is to look forward to that time, and therefore to get ready for it. That basically is the message of Second Peter. Let me just simply give you a few verses from each of the chapters, just so you get a flavor for Second Peter. Chapter 1, which is the exhortation to grow in true knowledge. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. We need to know those. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. That's why I said three times in these brief verses, knowledge is emphasized. And the source of that knowledge, later on in chapter 1, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's the primary thrust of the first chapter. Grow in the knowledge of Christ that we find in the scriptures where we have exceedingly precious promises given to us. Chapter 2 is a simple warning against false teachers. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And the rest of chapter 2 talks about the characteristics of false teachers and the eventual destruction and punishment of false teachers when Jesus comes back in glory, which of course is the third chapter, and the exhortation is to get ready for Jesus' return. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on to respond, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord. So there it is, in a nutshell, the message of Second Peter. And there's more information in the study guide for you to explore the book a little more in detail. I want to spend the rest of the message today looking at the so what. What is the message of Second Peter for you and me today? I want to work my way through these three basic exhortations. To grow, to guard, and to be prepared for Christ's coming in glory. Three times, as I said in chapter 1, Peter has been talking about knowledge. Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense, this whole Highway 27 series that we've been in is, in fact, an opportunity to do that. Because those 27 books of the New Testament all have one grand theme, Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the New Testament or the New Covenant. It's after Christ came. And we've been coming at it from many different angles, many different authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then 12 letters by the Apostle Paul. And then in the last three weeks, three different authors. An unnamed author who wrote the book of Hebrews, then James, and then 1 Peter, and then today another letter from Peter. And you've heard it from four different people. You've heard me preach, you've heard Andre preach, you've heard Tom G preach, and you've heard Duncan preach. But they're all communicating to you one thing. Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. Now please, may I plead with you, may I exhort you. Do not fret. Do not fret against all this cognitive input and too quickly clamor and plead for practical application. The very first relevant exhortation from Second Peter is to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Underlining for us the critical importance of proper understanding about Christ and about our life in Christ. You don't know it, but you are being poured into a mold, a shape of doctrine that is internally and quietly shaping your minds to think properly. To rush too quickly into the practical application without the proper solid foundations and understanding is unprofitable. And you know, all of the scripture itself emphasizes that. Let me give you a few illustrations. Romans, for example. We looked at that several months ago. Probably the single biggest and grandest treatise on the life, on the Christian life in the New Testament. Sixteen chapters in the book of Romans. 
Paul takes 11 chapters to slowly work his way through all of the rigorous theological understanding of the gospel. And only then in chapter 12 does he say, therefore, present your body. He doesn't doesn't run into a practical exhortation to present your bodies and go this, that and the other. He says, therefore, because these 11 chapters are true, please give your bodies and give your minds to serve God. Same thing in the book of Hebrews, even more unbalanced. 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews. And it is not till the 19th verse of the 10th chapter. And he begins, therefore. After spending 11, 10 and a half chapters talking about Jesus. Greater than the prophets. Greater than angels. Greater than Moses. Greater than Aaron. Greater than Joshua. Jesus' tabernacle. A better tabernacle. Better sacrifices. Better offerings. Better priesthood. Encouraging and exhorting us not to be milk drinkers, but to meat eaters. At the end of that, he says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest, let us. And the exhortations begin. It is exactly true when it comes to Ephesians. That beautiful letter dealing with the church of Jesus Christ. The first three chapters are all doctrine and theology. Therefore, chapter 1, what kind of lives should we be living? It is the biblical pattern. To get our understanding deep into the roots of who Christ is. And then build upon that. Now, of course, it is to be far more than just mere head knowledge. For in chapter 1 in Second Peter, and I call this the one ladder worth climbing. He says this, for this very reason, because these divine promises have been given to us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. But it doesn't stop there. And to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. There's lots more than knowledge, but not less than that. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Effectiveness and productivity in our knowledge of Christ is critical through all these practical expressions. But it rests upon foundational, accurate, proper, increasing knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I beg you, don't be impatient. Learn to listen, learn to understand, dig deep. That's why Paul says, for this very reason, make every effort, because it's going to take effort. It's a lot easier to listen to stories. Last week at the baptism service, we had amazing stories of life transformation. And in at least two of the services, the stories were longer than the sermon. And that's okay. Now let me ask you, be honest, which was easier to listen to? The stories or the sermon? Of course the stories are a lot easier to listen to. They've been made that way. And they are essential and they are important. But listen to a very important comment on this very easiness. And then I want to elaborate on that. Os Guinness wrote a book a few years ago called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. And he says this, Hearing and reading are slow, sequential, demanding and analytical processes. They put a premium on truth, understanding, and judgment. Visual communication, by contrast, he doesn't say it's bad. He just says it's faster, easier, more immediate, and more intuitive. And here is the danger. Not always, but it is often so obvious that it bypasses critical thought. It moves by association, not analysis. Words are not authoritative anymore, but become accessories. Thus, Thinking can very easily develop from emotion to emotion. And then this sentence, the outcome can be a jarring blend of intense convictions and incoherent arguments that is anything but seasoned spiritual wisdom. 
By the way, they've actually done experiments in a, movie, in a book called The Four Arguments for the Complete Elimination of Television. They actually monitored people's brain waves when they were watching TV. And they moved from alpha waves, which is when your brain is actively involved in processing the information, to I forget what the other kind of waves were, where you're just passively receiving a lot of input. Now, this doesn't mean, and please hear me, because last night I had a couple of important discussions with two people that suggested there was a potential for misunderstanding of what Guinness is saying and what I might be saying. I am not saying that image and imagination is bad or wrong or even less important. Another one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, was a man who has taught me everything I know about imagination. In the last 10-12 years, has been hugely influential in helping me to recognize the critical role of imagination. And he says this. He says, we have a pair of mental operations, imagination and explanation, designed to work in tandem. Explanation pins things down so that we can handle and use them, obey and teach, help and guide. Imagination opens things up so we can grow into maturity, worship and adore, exclaim and honor, follow and trust. Explanation restricts, defines and holds down. Imagination expands and lets loose. Explanation keeps our feet on the ground. Imagination lifts our head up into the clouds. Explanation puts us in harness. Imagination catapults us into mystery. They are both important. That's why just now in the bond thing, you had the word, which was your newsletter, and you had the video, which was explaining it in action. And both work together in tandem. But every so often, we go through phases in our culture where this balance gets out of whack. And if our previous generations focused upon the word to the neglect of image and therefore ran away from theater and ran away from drama and ran away from creativity, we are today living in a culture that is super drenched with image. And it comes at us from every different MTV, music, television, videos, DVDs, billboards. They're all over the place. And in that kind of environment, there is a real danger that the balance may tilt in the other direction. That's all that I'm saying. And in Second Peter, we are asked to redress the balance. We are losing our capacity because of the very sheer amount of image. We are losing our capacity to follow reasoned arguments. That's why we get too quickly tired of carefully reasoned arguments. In fact, we're losing the ability to make them too. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Many years ago when I was growing up in India, I loved sports. And I used to, because we didn't have TV then. And I used to listen to uh, Wimbledon uh, commentary. I was just totally dependent upon the ability of the commentators to paint word pictures. And one of the best commentators ever was a man named Max Robertson. And when he would describe the, the Wimbledon finals in center court, I could actually see the whole thing in my eyes, with my mind. So magnificent were the word pictures, they'd be able to, and they were able to keep up with it. Today, of course, we have Bud Collins, dressed in all his strange attire, talking about this, that, and the other, while three games have already gone. They wouldn't know how to create a word picture. If we lost the video, we'd be in trouble. That's what I'm talking about. We're losing the ability to think and follow carefully reasoned arguments. And so, we need to keep them both in their proper balance. But this takes effort. That's why Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge. So, be willing to make the effort. One comes easier. The other comes harder. They are both absolutely critical. And by the way, huge, huge portions of the Bible all, have, all speak to the imagination. But almost all of the images by their very nature are word pictures. 
And so the two are very closely linked together in the scriptures. So I, I hope that makes that a little bit clear. Now, let me just bring it down. Does it really work? Does this kind of uh, focus on uh, getting the knowledge of God, does that actually lead to life transformation? Let me give you some examples. Another one of my favorite authors I've quoted very often is John Piper. When it comes to helping me understand the knowledge of Christ, there is none better. Now, he has four sons. They have a daughter that they adopted many years later on. And one of the heartaches for many years in their lives until very recent time was that one of their sons was just slowly walking away from God. First having difficulties and then turned his back on God and began to live a very ungodly lifestyle that brought a whole lot of grief to the parents. Eventually, his church had to publicly discipline him. In fact, the elders did not want to do so because of love for their pastor. But at his own request, he said, because of the glory of Christ is at stake, you absolutely have to discipline him. Because he, would re- he resisted all attempts. And so he was publicly excommunicated. And the young man took off to Florida. Continued his lifestyle that was bringing so much shame and dishonor to the name of Christ. But the person who was telling me the story said that somebody in the church, a gal, or some girl in the congregation, gave him a verse, a single verse from the book of Romans. That's all he knew. He didn't know what the verse was. And something in Florida made him want to find out what that verse was about. And because he didn't know where it was in Romans, and he only knew it was in Romans, guess what he did? He read Romans from cover to cover. At the end of that, he picked up the phone and called his dad and said, I want to come back. 23-year-old guy, I think. The sheer power of God's word. The knowledge of Christ. He thought he was just looking for a verse. God had something else to do. So don't underestimate the power of word. And then let me look several years later at someone much older than that. When this young man came to know Christ the Savior, was exposed with the gospel, his mind was so fried with drugs he couldn't speak a complete sentence in English, even though English was his mother tongue. But when a group from this church went and visited his wife and presented the gospel to him, he said, what about me? And he gave his life to Christ. And for three years, a tiny little Bible in his back pocket, that's all he read. He read the Bible, but he needed a dictionary. He didn't know enough English. He'd have a dictionary and a Bible, have a dictionary and a Bible. He, did not, he read nothing else but the Bible. And yes, he would listen to his, uh, some of the sermons that his pastor preached. And within three years, he was a completely transformed man. He began to lead people to Christ. He began to have, became a lay pastor before we ever knew what that term was. Then he went to plant a church downtown, and now he's planting another church. You know him as Miles Valley. The power of the word to transform a mind. And I won't bore you again with what I have rehearsed at various times in the past, but this week, as I was looking at the application of the message in my own life, I made a list of all those areas in my life, the way I live today, I try to live today. Every single critical area, from my marriage to my parenting, to how I spend my money, to how I spend my time, to what entertainment I allow to what priorities are in my life, every single one of them is traced to some kind of systematic understanding of what God's word says about those aspects of life. So my brothers and my sisters, make every effort to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the urgency, the urgency of this was underlined when we look at the relevance of the second chapter of Second Peter, which is false teachers. Now, today, I'm not sure whether we have poison in this pew. I don't think so. All the teachers that you hear are are, are men and women who are well-versed in the scriptures. And there are checks and balances in this church. Our elders will move to act very quickly if they see false teaching. And we've had to do that once in the past. But false teachers do exist. 
And though they are harder to detect today, perhaps, not so obvious, that only increases the danger from them. Some of you, many of you probably heard of the book, The Da Vinci Code. Eight million copies of that book have already been sold in hardcover. And now for Christmas season, there's another big glossy one with all kinds of photographs in it that have come out. Appropriately priced, of course. And by the end of 2005 or early 2006, they're going to make a movie and Tom Hanks is going to be acting on it. Those are big guns. And the essence of the message of that book is that the scriptures are not reliable. Flying right in the face of what Second Peter wrote. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's Da Vinci Code versus Peter head to head. And I'm afraid that precisely because of the power of image that I talked about, if we are not well rooted in the scripture and the knowledge of Christ, we're going to become sitting ducks for this kind of stuff. And Hollywood isn't going to give up, folks. The result of the recent elections have only made them even more determined because they now see that evangelical block as their enemy. Even more so than before. You're only going to see more and more of this kind of effort. And then on talk show, not talk show, uh, night television, the key channels, whether it's ABC's Peter Jennings or somebody else at NBC or, or Aaron Brown in CNN presents, many, many features about Jesus and about the Christian faith are regularly presented. And almost all of the witnesses that they call in, the professors and the theologians, are all at the liberal end of the spectrum, who together are continuously undermining the credibility of the scriptures. It is coming at us from every direction. That's where the false teachers are coming from. And they're coming primarily through the root of image. The the, the devastating effect of this can be seen in a recent study that George Barna did of the born-again community south of the border. The United States claims to have about 40 million born-again people. And here's what Barna found out in his research. Among all born-again adults, approximately 25%, which is one quarter, make their moral and ethical choices on the basis of the Bible. That's all. Another 20% base their choices on whatever feels right. Just over 8% rely on what their parents taught them in terms of values and principles. Another 10% do whatever will minimize conflict and and lesser proportions, trust various other approaches. In essence, this tells us that three out of four born-again Christians overlook the Bible as their shaping worldview influence. If this isn't bad enough, it only gets worse. Because he then asked the 25% of the people who do base their moral values and ethical choices on the Bible, and he asked them, how many of you believe that the Bible, biblical values are absolute? Here's the answer. Only half of this group believes that all moral truth is absolute. The other half believes that moral decisions must be made on the basis of the individual's perceptions and the specific situation, or they really haven't thought about whether the truth is relative or absolute. The bottom line is that only 14% of born-again adults, approximately one in seven, both rely on the Bible and believe that moral truth is absolute. Very few born-again Christians have their foundation in place. What would the results of a survey like that show here? I don't know. I hope it's a lot, lot better. And the reason, the reason for this devastation is precisely the refusal to do what Peter did. Put every effort, make every effort to grow, to add to your faith goodness, to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and to your self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. 
make every effort. It is underlined by the devastating presence of false teachers. All the more dangerous because they are not so obvious. And then in chapter 3, Paul gives us one final reason for it. He says the stakes could not be higher. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming back again. And in chapter 3, he gives some solid reasons for us to believe that Jesus will come back again. And again, they are rooted in God's word. He begins by saying in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, But they, the people who scoff at the second coming of Christ because it's taken so long, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these very waters that were formed by the word of God, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And then, of course, after that, God made a covenant with Noah. And so he says, by that same word, referring to that covenant of preservation with Noah, the present heavens and earth are reserved, but they are being reserved for another judgment, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So what Peter is saying is that these people who scoff at the second coming of Christ because it's taking so long, he said, it is because they deliberately forget how God's word has already operated in the past. It's one of the few times in scripture where we are not being appealing to visible, invisible reality, but to visible reality. He said, this world was created by God's word. And by the way, it's being kept by God's covenant word that he made to Noah. That he will never again destroy the world of the flood until Jesus comes back again. And then anticipating, anticipating the motivation of the second coming in chapter 1, Peter adds to this by saying, and by the way, talking about Christ coming back in glory, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven, when we were with him on the sacred mount. Peter basically is taking two ideas of the word of God and putting them together as, a, as an assurance that Christ is coming again. First of all, by God's word, the heavens were, world was created. Secondly, by that same word is being reserved for judgment when Christ comes again. And guys, I have already seen Jesus in glory. We got a glimpse of him, but that's enough for me to know he is coming back again. Therefore, therefore he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many scoffers there are, and you and I have to admit that some days we feel the same way. I know I do. Lord, will you really come back again? It's been 2,000 years since you made that promise. And we struggle with it. And so a verse like this, a scripture like this comes and says, you have a sure word. And you have my testimony as an eyewitness. And so he says, no matter how long it takes, keep looking forward to that day. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And by the way, we speed its coming by proclaiming his word, by getting involved in Vaughan, by sending a group of people over there to plant a church. And we hope, like Andre shared, that thousands of people will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and fill the walls of those churches in the years to come. That's how we speed his coming. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And then, therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, I'm not telling you something you don't know. <laughs> but because some people forget, Peter says, you remind them. Be on your guard. That's the other one. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. If you are constantly wrestling with doubt whether we can even believe the scriptures, we're not going to be looking forward to his coming much less working to speed that coming. Instead, he says, grow 
and the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. So we're exhorted to grow. The danger, dangerous presence of false teachers underlines the urgency and the need to grow. And then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the highest motivation for that. So I'll try to take Second Peter and summarize it in one sentence. It is a call to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, revealed in the Holy Scriptures, authored by God Himself through human beings, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And thus prepare ourselves for that day when we will encounter Jesus Christ in all His visible glory, while at the same time carefully guarding ourselves against false teaching that has the real potential to seduce us and endanger our eternal destiny. That's the message of Second Peter in a nutshell. So let me give you some specific next steps. If we're going to make the effort to grow. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I suggested to you that Highway 27 is one of the um, vehicles. The primary vehicle to do that. So here's my suggestion. Another few weeks we'll wrap up the series. Why don't you take out those tapes. Get yourself a series of those tapes and the study guides. And then at your own pace. But, but on some kind of a regular basis. Work your way through all of 520. Listen to the messages again. Work your way through the study guide. And if you're the kind of person who likes to do it better with somebody else than by yourself, and that's just people with different personalities, find a friend, find a roommate and say, hey, you want us to walk on this journey together? Maybe spouses can consider that. Those of you who have older children, you might want to make this a, a family night journey for a year or so. Well, each night of the week on your family night, you just listen to the next message on Highway 27, work your way through the study guide, and go deeper in your understanding and knowledge of Christ. You, when you finish that, you can do the same thing with the Old Testament. We haven't finished the Old Testament, but at least 20, 27 of the Old Testament books have also had single messages with study guides and reading guides on them. You may want to continue that, and that way develop a good grasp of the scriptures yourself. If you're the kind that likes to go much more deeper and you want to do just one book, take the book of Romans. When we preach through Romans, I suggested that. And I've had at least two people who are now regularly working their way through the tapes on Romans. And I just, every now and then, get emails from them telling them what God is doing in their life. That might be another option for you. Yet others of you work best when there is external constraints put upon you. Well, take a course at CTS East or Tyndale and stretch yourself in that area. There are adult modules twice a year on Sunday evenings. And periodically in your bulletin you will see other study courses that teachers in this church offer in various ways. Whatever shape fits you, whatever speed fits you, speed is not the issue. Regular, steady, perseverance. Remember he says you will need to possess these in increasing knowledge. God is not asking us to possess all knowledge now. He has given me the wonderful, merciful gift of being able to Study and teach the scriptures for 42 years now. I don't know how many more years I have left. I didn't know when I started. Start someplace and accumulate little by little by little. Only one thing, folks. Please don't say no. Don't refuse this calling. Dallas Willard said it very well. He said, it is an unarguable fact that what we do or do not understand determines what we can or cannot believe and therefore governs our action with an iron hand. Which is what we learned. Our understanding foundations results in our actions. Which is why the whole concept of practical exhortations without a basis in understanding merely pro produces 
uh, do good religious morality. That's all. You cannot believe a blur or a blank. And the blanks in our understanding can only be filled in by careful instruction and hard thinking. Commitment is not sustained by confusion but by insight. The person who is uninformed or confused will inevitably be unstable and vulnerable in action, thought and feeling. I have seen repeatedly the dire consequence of refusing to give deep thoughtful consideration to the ways in which God chooses to deal with us and of relying on whatever whimsical ideas and preconceptions about his ways happen to be flying around us. Indeed, when we refuse to make the effort to understand God's dealings with humanity, we are in rebellion against the express will of God. The conscious rejection of thoughtful and careful study is not faith, and it does not spring from faith. It is a rejection of God-appointed means to God-appointed ends. As the worship team comes now and leads us in two songs, often we invite you during this closing worship time to give your hearts to God. Today I'm asking you to give your minds to God. Because we are called to love Him not only with our hearts but with our minds. With our imagination and our intellect working together in proper balance. And the very first song is a, is a well-known hymn of the church. A mighty fortress is our God. Because you see, there is a battle going on for our minds. And for the minds of our children, folks. The educational system knows very, very well. Get the minds of those kids when they are young. Train them what to think. Moses was with his mother only until he was weaned. And 40 years in Egypt couldn't flush out what she had taught him. That's the power of Moses. This is a battle for our minds. is a battle for the minds of our children. And as we sing this song as a triumphant song, let those affirmations of faith, quicken faith within your own heart to say, God, I give you my mind too. And I'm willing to make it whatever pace is appropriate to me, whatever manner is appropriate to me in my life situation right now. I am willing to make every effort to add to my faith goodness and to my goodness knowledge so that I will not be unproductive and ineffective in my knowledge of God. Peter said, because of this sure word of prophecy that we have, made more sure in Jesus that we would do well to pay attention to it until morning star rises in your heart. And that's my benediction for you is that in whatever way God has spoken to you today, as you begin to take those first steps or further steps in growing in the knowledge of Christ, may he very speedily grant you a glimpse of his glory so that your appetite will only be increased and your joy and the foretaste of that joy will sustain you on this lifelong pursuit. Go in Jesus' name.